Welcome to a special edition of the interview series from the Retail Exchange in San Francisco. Hosted by Carl McKeever. Brought to you in association with Visual Thinking, inspiring retail performance. You're listening to the Retail Exchange podcast. I'm Carl McKeever, and I'm delighted to be sitting here today with Travis Boyce, Head of Global Retail Operations for Allbirds. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. So, Travis, we're going to uh, start the conversation today. I'd like to learn a little bit more about Allbirds. Can you tell me the brand story? What is it? What does it mean? What does it do? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, many years ago, Tim Brown was a professional soccer player. He's one of our co-founders uh, and had the idea for a wool shoe. And he'd, he'd sort of uh, been sponsored by big brands and uh, didn't like the nasty synthetics and the leathers and, and felt that a wool shoe from using natural materials from his homeland in New Zealand would be an interesting idea. And he toiled on it for quite some time. And uh, it was not an overnight success. And he, he brought together uh, a, a great co-founder in Joey's Willinger, uh, who's an American, and uh, they actually got introduced by their wives in, in from college. Um, and so the two of them joined at it in, in mid-early uh, 2015 uh, and sort of came up with what is now the Allbirds business based on Tim's original idea. Uh, and we launched March 1st, 2016 with a single shoe, the Wool Runner, um, and and lived with that one product for, for 12 or 14 months before we launched even a second silhouette. So it was, it was something where we were very committed to a very small assortment, and, um, and it's uh, all about natural materials, uh, simple design, and comfort, and, and that, that's what guides us in, in the products we've launched since then. And I'm right in thinking that originally you were a pure play online retailer. Yep, absolutely. Launched uh, direct consumer online only. I think we always had the idea that we'd open retail. We've seen the success that other brands have, and, and frankly, footwear, uh, even to this day, is still 80% in brick and mortar in terms of purchases. So uh, retail is important regardless for footwear, and especially with such a tactile uh, sort of sen- uh, sensory product like ours, where the touch and the feel makes such a difference and really helps tell the story just as much uh, as reading about it. I guess uh, your title itself reveals perhaps something about the change and the growth within the company. Um, as head of global retail, what exactly do you do? I cover a little bit of everything as it relates to brick and mortar. So anything from our real estate strategy, site selection, leasing, uh, construction, and we work closely with our, our design and creative studio, uh, and then uh, all the hiring and retail operations and, and then managing of our ongoing business. So it's, it's sort of the gamut of, of brick and mortar, and, and it's been just an incredible experience so far. So if it's anything about retail, it lands on your desk. Pretty much, yeah. And we've got great partners in, in some of our other markets. So in in uh, China and Shanghai and in London, we have uh, store teams and some small outpost offices that help support us. But largely, uh, we're driven in, in supporting the world out of San Francisco. From the first store in San Francisco, um, where are you now and how many stores are you up to? Yes, yeah, so we're uh, up to 10. We're in uh, New York, San Francisco, London, uh, Chicago, Boston, Shanghai, Beijing, Seattle, uh, Auckland, San Francisco 2 is coming up, and then LA. Uh, I think I've gotten to 10 right there, but yeah, it's hard to keep track now with how, how quickly we've gone, but it's been super exciting, and, and to go this far and this fast onto four continents before we hit 10 stores, I think has been uh, an incredible experience, but also we've learned a ton as well. What's influencing you in terms of site selection or city selection or where you want to be next? Yeah, I think what we've seen, especially in some of the international markets, is that having uh, uh, planting a flag with a physical space helps with sort of introducing the brand to the market. Again, 80% of shoe sales are still offline and that 
try on experience for something that is as particular as a fitting a shoe is, is still important globally. So uh, that's one aspect of it. And the second is is lending some credibility to an American brand. I mean, we, we are still so young, even in America, the awareness uh, has continued to grow. But as we enter these new markets, having a, a place for a customer to come and understand a little bit more about the brand, it's uh, there's a lot you can tell on a website. But that in-person experience uh, with the retail team that we've hired in each of these markets really helps tell that story and, and give a sort of deeper, uh, more physical experience than what you could provide on a website. So it's it's been sort of a, a nice pairing with our, our digital expansion internationally, and, and the two work hand in hand and support each other quite well. In the U.S., we frankly have started to see that opening stores helps our e-commerce, and, and the two are sort of uh, uh, symbiotic in their relationship, and they, the, the e-commerce traffic we've seen has increased when we open stores in new markets. So um, that's been super exciting for us as we explore this omni-channel world where the two play off each other and interact and, uh, and sort of allows us to have one view of the customer and, and not favor one or the other necessarily. The stores that you have are in uh, important international cities. Is it essentially uh, the Americans who are abroad mm-hmm. who, who know the brand? Are you talking to new people, say, in your Covent Garden store, introducing it to the UK and to mm-hmm. customers in, in that area? Or is it people that are just passing through? It's a little bit of everything. I think what we try to do is find a location in our international markets where we get a good blend of both the local consumer and the tourists. So Covent Garden's a great example where you have the the local tourists that'll come through as they head to the traditional Covent Garden Piazza. Similarly, in, in New Zealand, I'll point to our store there, and Britomart is uh, just the hub of transportation for Auckland. So all cruise ships, all trains, all buses come through that port and that point of contact, yet it's also a very local feel for, for the Auckland consumer. So we try to find that blend that allows us to, again, reach the local consumer, but also have that tourist and just continues to help fuel the awareness in, in our international expansion. One of the things I've noticed from the stores that you have is that you tend to be in neighbourhood environments rather than malls. Um, Is there a particular reason why you sort of favour premises in those areas? Yeah, I'd say for us right now as we're building the brand, having complete control of the environment is important to us, though there are certain places where a mall makes most sense. So in Asia right now, our two Chinese stores are in traditional, more traditional shopping centres. They're incredibly high quality and and sort of uh, the best of the best, but they are still shopping centres and we sort of think that's important to launch in that market. Um, in the U.S., we're in University Village in Seattle, which is uh, a beautiful outdoor shopping uh, environment. But we do we do favor the high street if it's available and if it's a great location with high foot traffic and uh, an opportunity for us to uh, sell a lot of shoes. If you can, and on this meteoric journey, how would you say the company has changed in the last three years since you joined? Uh, in, in some ways a lot, in other ways not so much. I think uh, certainly we have a lot more people. We're in so many more countries. The complexity of our business is is sort of would have been hard to fathom three and a half years ago when I joined. And I think uh, we've risen to the occasion and, and built a business around it that we hope is enduring and scales for a long, long time. I'd say some of the things that haven't changed is sort of stem from Joey and Tim and creating a culture that is focused on our employees and our customers and our product and and really sort of delivering for those 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 three sort of subsets and groups. And um, I think that that culture of hiring really high horsepower individuals who don't have an ego, who are excited about the mission that we're on and who have a feel that this is something that they can get behind and, and, and they feel that they're working for a good purpose. Um, that hasn't changed from day one. I think that's what's Uh, been really exciting and energizing is the more people come into this business um, that are excited about what we're doing and and why we're doing it, that just continues to reinforce and remind me why I joined. 
In the mid-market, you know, shoes don't get, you know, a pretty good wrap. Um, mm. You know, you put them on your feet, you forget about them, you stick them under a desk for most of the day. Why are all birds so different? Because you are a brand which have got some pretty important um, advocates. I think uh, Barack Obama was once known to be wearing his all birds too. Why are your shoes making the headlines? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And for us, uh, starting with one single product and being focused on creating something that was uh, uh, had to be special and, and unique and differentiated because we were only focused on one product and that was that was all we had. So we didn't have an entire assortment to lean on. We couldn't create 20 things and hope a couple of them were interesting. Uh, the amount of time and energy that Joey and Tim and our design team put into that first product, I think they had a lot of confidence they'd created something special. And, and the reason I think it was special is, um, one, stripping away anything that was unnecessary and focusing on simplicity. You, you notice there's no flashy logos. There's no uh, extra components to hide things. It's a very simple, unstructured shoe that I think is quite elegant and, uh, and beautiful that doesn't necessarily draw a ton of attention like some of the sort of flashy or sort of uh, trend shoes that you might see in the market today. I think the second point that's uh, sort of obvious is, is the comfort factor, and it truly is an aha moment when you step into it. And, and watching a new customer in our store try on a shoe for the first time quite Quite an incredible experience and fun to watch to this day. And then I think again, what underpins all this is the sustainability story and our, our our desire to innovate on materials. And first was merino wool. Second was creating creating a eucalyptus fiber. We then created uh, our, our own uh, uh, negative. Uh, carbon neutral EVA. Uh, it's a green EVA. It's called Sweet Foam. And now we've created a blend of the two first two uh, products in uh, tree and merino called Trino. So I think that that last part is quite important and what drives our future product roadmap and where we continue to innovate and create new things for people that they'll love um, is that uh, material innovation and sustainability. The consumer um, these days is motivated by a whole range of different things. You know, selling in the past was somewhat easier. You know, you, you put a decent looking store down, you filled it as full of stuff, you gave people a decent experience and they you know, essentially would go home happy. These days the consumer is more granularised in terms of some of the things which are important to them. You mentioned the, some of the manufacturing methods you use and how you've pulled away some, some of the say more harmful products which are in the environment or certainly have had a, a bad press in recent years. To what extent do you see the different motivations within your own customer base? And are they similar for all of the customers that you serve? Yeah, I think I think that's what's interesting is it's varied for every customer. I think we see some customers who come in who are uh, attracted to just a single element, and it might be the comfort, and that's what they've come for, and they've struggled to find a comfortable shoe that works for them. There's others who are drawn to our design, and I think that's where it is. It is quite recognizable, though we, we don't have any logos or any sort of flash on it necessarily like other brands might, but it is a highly recognizable shoe that people are drawn to. And if you walk down the street to this day, people often ask uh, where, where, what kind of shoe uh, or they recognize it as Allbirds. Um, and then I will say, again, there are people, and I think it is the minority, that people are buying just for sustainability. But I think we're at a turning point where people are starting to focus on how they consume and the types of products that they have in their lives. And that's where I think Allbirds fits in quite nicely on the footwear and now on the sock side. So um, you, you mentioned the socks there, and I think recently you kind of set the whole internet alight with the uh, the launch of Allbirds socks. And I think many people are asking the questions: Well, is this the launch potentially of a you know more of an extension into other apparel items? Where are you on that? 
Yeah, I think I think we'll have to see. I think it gives us a lot of flexibility to create this new textile and this new uh, uh, a piece of fabric that could be leveraged for a lot of different things. Um, socks are certainly our first. We want to make sure we get that right and continue to serve our customers well with our first sort of two categories of, of shoes and socks. But I think the opportunities are, are limitless with what we can do with the material platform that we're creating. And I guess certainly when you look at a brand like Hunter Boots, for example, you would see that from an original core product, which they developed, you know, you know pretty much over 100 years worth of history there and very solid brand devotees, ultimately they've been able to extend and extend and extend pretty much to a full line of uh, outdoor gear, weather gear now as well. So that, I guess, is something that you have open for consideration. Yeah, I think whatever we do will be rooted in sustainability and using material innovation with uh, the the products that we make will be better for the environment. And then I think we also have to sort of consider the design and the comfort. And those three things are what guide everything that we do. And um, again, I think that that leaves uh, quite a few things up in the air that we could work on in the future. So let's watch this space and, and keep coming back for more. Yeah, that's what I would say. So one of the things which I think as a brand you define yourself as is that you are purpose-led can you just unpack that for us? What does it mean? Yeah, I think for us, uh, it means that the we have three things I think we focus on, and it's uh, our customers, our employees, and the environment, and not necessarily in that order, but um, we're purpose-driven by we're creating products that are better for the environment, um, and, uh, and, and in that sense, uh, hopefully, uh, consumers are attracted to them, and we want to deliver that experience to our consumers who uh, we think are yearning for these kinds of products that are better uh, for the earth and are using interesting materials that they haven't seen before and uh, deliver maybe a unique experience on the comfort side, and then last, I'd say, is, is the purpose-driven part of creating a great uh, place to work in an environment for, for our employees that we're very proud of and uh, is something that we will continue to grow across the globe with offices, again, on three continents at this point and um, maybe more in the future. I don't know if, as a brand, you're yet involved in the whole kind of circular economy side of product. So, yes, you're selling in a pretty ethical way, by all sounds. What happens at the end of life? Yeah, I think it's something we, we have a, a lot to work on. It's not something we don't say we're perfect by any means, and it's been a process of continuous improvement, even from our first product. I think there's probably been 30-plus changes to our original wool runner, um, some of design, some of them comfort, but then, of course, a lot related to sustainability in terms of changing out how our eyelets are made, some of the lace materials, and probably the most iconic would be the sweet foam on the outsole. I think circularity is a tough one because of the challenge of disassembling something like a shoe and trying to figure out how to reuse or recycle. One of the things we do do with the end-of-life shoes that we get back to us is, is we donate them to Souls for Souls, so individuals in uh, countries where they may not have footwear or where it's uh, challenging for them to, to afford them, we provide them to them for free, and it's a donation on our behalf. So um, though I don't think we have all the answers right now, we're certainly working on it, and we have an amazing team on the R&D and innovation side trying to figure out how we close the loop on that, and, and it's something that we're striving for, but certainly not perfect or there yet. There's lots of examples now where you know major high street brands are all getting onto the kind of the recycling bandwagon you know, bring your jeans in, get $15 off here, you know, change that up, change that down. To, to what extent is that kind of almost just a marketing gimmick rather than actually a genuine heartfelt response to perhaps, you know, the whole environmental issue? This is something that has been there for day one from us. And, and even the very first first time we launched that, Souls for Souls was a partner of ours. Um, the other thing I'd say is it isn't something we necessarily draw a ton of attention to. I mean, we talk about them and we are very proud to be partners with them and we want to help amplify their story as much as we can, but it's 
not something that, again, I think to your point, it's not something that we dangle in front of consumers a ton. It's not something that we preach to other brands a ton. I think we do it because we think it's the right thing to do. We have uh, shoes that come back to us that can't be resold or that are in near new condition. Um, and we want to find something to do with them. And the alternatives uh, that other brands or fast fashion might do, whether it's burning them or disposing of them, I think would be unthinkable to us. And so for us, it's, it's getting them into hands of someone that might be able to use a product uh, after its, its first life. One of the considerations, I'm sure, as you grow is whether you continue to follow the uh, direct-to-consumer model with your own retail stores or perhaps think about wholesale. And certainly there's been lots of evidence in the past where, you know, brands have, first of all, had a a much higher uh, presence within department stores or in third-party retailers, etc. But at this time, you seem to uh, kind of almost really stick pretty clear to say, no, it's our concept, it's our store, and, and we're kind of doing it our way. Tell me about that, please. Yeah, I think for us, it's exactly right. I think we are focused uh, and want to remain focused and disciplined on on the direct-to-consumer model with our own stores and our own websites. Um, and we've got a lot on our plates with our, the countries we're going after and the development of, of sort of lots of programs across uh, our entire business that I think we would be sort of, we don't want to be distracted by wholesale. And I think the more important point for us is that connection to the customer I think you referenced. And for us, that one-to-one relationship where not only do we get to talk directly with them and understand what they're buying and, and what they're sort of uh, habits are, but I think even more importantly is the feedback we get back directly from them, and, and that's what's informed a lot of the changes in our footwear, changes in how we operate, changes in the experience in our stores and our website, that if, if we were to lose that connection, I don't think we'd be nearly as successful, and it's something that we listen to every day, whether they call into our customer experience uh, desk here in San Francisco, whether they're chatting with our store associates or communicating with us in another form. We have that one-to-one relationship with our com- customer that I think is quite important and that we're, we're pretty focused on at this point. And is that because you're just keen to control the quality of the experience, the consistency of the experience, or, or, or in more, more plain terms, I guess, to also to be able to manage the revenue opportunities better? Yeah, I think it's all the above. I think the experience one is important for me, particularly on the retail side, that um, I, I think there's a sort of narrative that retail is dead, and I think it's more so bad retail. And I can remember growing up and having poor experiences, poor customer service, um, uh, associates or salespeople that weren't familiar with their products. And I think those are things that we try to avoid. And, and by having a one-to-one relationship and controlling that experience, particularly with the people that we hire and the ability for us to train them and continue to educate them and, and have them be motivated and excited to work for us uh, and and having that trust and relationship with them as our employees, uh, it allows us to be, deliver such an incredible experience to to our customers in the direct-to-consumer model that's more challenging when they're not your employees or you're not your stores. And what I find quite interesting and, and kind of almost from my perspective as I look at all of these conversations that we have across the year, there are some direct patterns that emerge. And I would say that, you know, a small brand, typically a disruptor brand, a brand which is growing, they feel so passionate about wanting to control all of those things you just described. And for all the right reasons. If you could crystal ball in the future and say, will we still have the same ethos and values now as we will have in five years' time when actually business might have tightened, we've opened the stores we've got, and actually we need the numbers? Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know that I can speak too far in the future, but, but my sense is and what I personally believe is that we have so much runway and potential left in the way we're doing business that... Um, that is a reason enough for us to continue what we're doing in the way we're doing it. Um, and I think that our, our founders feel that way, and I think we're committed to this. And I'll never say never, but I do think that we're committed to the direct-to-consumer model for quite a bit longer. 
And it's not to say that the two are mutually exclusive, because obviously you look at a brand like Nike, and they've been able to satisfy consumers across every channel. So you have their dedicated stores, but you also have their online marketplaces. And I think they demonstrate that actually, perhaps it's the strength of the brand, and actually the access to different types of consumers in different places, which helps them to win out. Certainly, I think for certain brands, it might be important in the wholesale business, especially in legacy brands, where that was the way to do business. Um, that remains a very important and large part of, of how, how they operate and how they sell. I think for us, we we're fortunate to be born in a time when direct-to-consumer became uh, a way to do business on its own without the wholesale side of the business. And, and I think we feel that there's, a uh, again, a, a sizable business to be had that uh, relies just on that model. Um, and I think there's a ton of potential, like I said, in runway in, in our existing even uh, countries, let alone any sort of future expansion or uh, category. So I think that the direct-to-consumer model is one that we're committed to for quite some time. And I was going to ask you about some of the operational challenges that uh, are obviously involved when you are opening stores on a, a more intercontinental basis rather than just within your own backyard. In practical, real terms, how do you see the operational challenges of trying to run stores in Asia, stores in Europe and stores in US when there's only 10 of them? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I think it's something that's been a little bit of a blessing and a curse. And it's a, uh, a, only a curse in the sense that we went so fast that we've had to learn as we're doing. And, and, and it's been a tremendous experience uh, to, to sort of uh, be learning in these markets as we're building stores and opening them. We're fortunate that we've been able to hire some pretty incredible talent in those markets that are experienced seasoned retailers and e-commerce professionals for both the EU and Europe and, and China. And, and so being able to lean on their experience has been quite important. But there's always challenges. I mean, with China, they're uh, a day ahead of us and, and time zones line up. So even something as simple operationally, to your point, as uh, scheduling calls and trying to communicate can always be tough. I think our sense and mindset at HQ in San Francisco is to be a service center, and, and we want to support those international markets as best we can. I think there's always uh, a sense of us trying to provide support and guidance and some guardrails, but letting them localize their content, their material, and, and really make it their own business. And I think that's where we may be different than a traditional model where it's sort of take it or leave it and and you're sort of do it the American way. Uh, I think we've been very open and, and very supportive of localizing our businesses uh, to that consumer and to that market. Uh, and it strikes me that one of the words that hasn't come up in the conversation so far is that what you're actually trying to build here is culture. And there's a culture and an ethos which is coming through the company. Now, I get that. But, you know, when you're opening stores across such massive geographical um, spread, how do you build a culture when in real terms, through time, through distance, in many cases, even through language, that actually maybe it's harder to progress those things quite so well? Yeah, it's, it's certainly one of the challenges that we face every day. But I'd say there's a couple things that we've done most of them quite tactical and how we've how we've maintained a community and a culture that we think is quite positive. And it starts with uh, communication for us. And that means that the U.S. team is conscious of other time zones, that we're spending time in the evenings making sure that we line up with our Asian uh, counterparts, that they can talk to us on a regular basis. Uh, and in the sort of uh, the sort of truest form of communication, spending time face to face. And so um, we are very consciously spending time in each other's markets and uh, learning from each other, uh, getting to know the team members whether they're in China or London uh, or Auckland, where we have a store now. Uh, and so I think that's been very important in these early days is building relationships through communication. And, and I think the biggest part is spending time together, which 
again, maybe not all companies have the liberty of having employees move around to see each other as frequently. And again, as far and wide as we've gone, we only have three offices right now. Um, But that's been an incredible benefit to us to learn and develop relationships and begin to trust each other as we build these businesses that are uh, thousands and thousands of miles away from each other. And who knows, it'll probably get more challenging as we add more countries and more stores. But for the time being, that's been super helpful to develop these relationships early on and have the trust that we know that they're doing the right thing and that they're representing all birds in the way that uh, it was intended to be in their own markets. 10 stores now. Where else are you going and uh, how fast? So we haven't uh, we haven't disclosed everything. We're, we're very excited about retail. I think it's something that we're now committed to, and we've seen the success from a financial perspective, from an experience perspective, and and the impact it has on the e-commerce business that we discussed earlier. So I think we're firmly committed to doing a lot of retail. The rest of this year, we've got two more in in China and Chengdu and Guangzhou, and then we have one more announced store in Berlin that we're really excited about to add a second on the European continent. Um, and from there, I think we're excited about uh, figuring out what to do next year. And we've started working some stuff, but haven't really anything. And I, I would say that it's something that we're committed to and feel very strongly about in all of our markets. And within an Allbirds store, how do you set that out? Um, is there a particular kind of almost methodology or thought process about how you go about organizing the goods in store or even the store design? Yeah, it's something where that uh, sort of we have an 80-20 rule that I think uh, has applied to other businesses and others ha- have done it before us. But 80% is quite standardized, allows us to be flexible and to go global quickly because the system, the operations, uh, the resources we use are globally consistent. And we leave 20% for a local touch and it's using natural materials from uh, that particular country or city. It's picking colors and some custom laces. So it's offering a bit of localization to that store. And that gives us that design that I think feels unique and fresh in every environment and feels like home to the customer in that market. But when you walk into one of our stores and then another store, you see the resemblance and you understand it's an Allbirds store uh, in in the way it's designed, in the way it's formatted. Um, And it's something that we spent uh, almost a year figuring out uh, operating a pop-up here in San Francisco where we learned what it meant to be an Albert store, and it was everything from the try-on experience for the customer, which we think is that critical point where someone realizes uh, how comfortable uh, and how much they are going to enjoy these shoes, um, to the operations and supporting our, cust- uh, our employees. And, and, and we think that's something that often gets overlooked in the employees in a store are second uh, to the customers and they're sort of an afterthought and that's sort of how things often had been done in the past and for us we wanted to make their lives easier we wanted to make the boxes colorful so they can wayfind and find the right pair we want to have the inventory exposed they don't have to go digging into a basement or into a back room like a traditional retailer might um, so we've had this uh, this pop-up uh, that that allowed us to explore a lot of different opportunities for operational changes for design changes um, and how we wanted that customer journey to progress uh, and and that's sort of informed how we now have our 10 stores that have a local touch, a global feel related to the Allbirds brand, and then consistent experience for our customers and our employees. And I think one of the things that strikes me visiting the stores is that they have a very light and airy feel. In some ways, that feels very complementary to what the product design itself is about. Yeah, I think we've tried not to add in things that don't make an impact on the experience, whether it's for the customer or the employee or things that distract from the product. So anything that's frivolous or gimmicky, we've we've sort of avoided. And, and we've kept that focus uh, in terms of the product and, and the design on our on our shoes and, and not take away from those. And then how the stores are laid out and how our try-on experience is uh, 
uh, designed is to serve our customers' employees, and, and, and that's what we're focused on, and, and not trying to add in things that are not going to be a high impact in a positive way to so any tell, of those So tell parties. me about this uh, the try-in experience, because I, I kind of, um, uh, I'm smiling here. If uh, if we had this on video, you'd be able to see I've got a big grin side to side here. Um for so many people that try on shoes in store, it's an absolutely soulless experience. And there's no pun intended meant to be there. You know, you, the, you, you ask the question, have you got my size? Somebody comes along, they drift away, they come back eventually, present a box, give you a shoe. How is your experience different? And what is the ooh moment where you suddenly realize that these things are darn comfy. Yeah, I think for one, again, it starts with the people and you talk about some of your experiences in the past, but I think that's where we've been able to find really talented individuals to deliver that experience and to deliver the comfort. And in terms of the customer side of, of that experience, it starts with the chair that we've designed and in, in our in-house head of design, Jamie McClellan, who... Just describe the chair for yeah, us. Yeah, so, so before he was a shoe designer, uh, he was actually a furniture designer and, and that was uh, a benefit that we had in this testing process uh, during the early days in our stores. But um, he came up with a chair that's a, a single individual chair that if you look at it, it has uh, it's reminiscent of the shoe in that everything is stripped away. There's no uh, extra things that are unnecessary. It's a very simple form that looks like it was designed overnight, but in fact was something that he toiled on for quite some time. As, as I see it, it's a very sensual form. Yeah. And actually, you, you could imagine it. It's almost like the heel of a shoe. So you stick your ass in, in the chair and suddenly you're home. Yeah, so the the, the back of the chair is, is sort of reminiscent of the heel tab on the shoes, and, and that's all sort of intentional. There's a space under the chair that the shoebox fits in so you don't have shoeboxes strewn all over the floor. There's a slight tilt to the chair so when you lean forward to tie your shoelaces, the chair, the chair shifts forward ever so slightly to give you a little bit of help there. So every little detail was thought through, and I think it's just a credit to, to someone like Jamie, who's an incredible designer, to come up with something so simple and, and uh, understated, but yet uh, quite a powerful piece when you look at it in the store. And again, you've been inside one, but the way we lay them out uh, is that it's quite an open space without any uh, uh, things that block or, or obstruct your view throughout the store. So you see a, 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 just a sea of chairs and, and people trying on the shoes. And it's an amazing experience to walk in as a customer or as an employee and to see that experience of someone putting their foot into an Allbirds for the first time and stepping up and the smile that comes across their face or the, I, I, I heard this from my friends, but I knew it couldn't be true. And, and then, aha, I've tried that on and they're able to walk around. And oftentimes they're leaving their old shoes in the store and walking out in Allbirds. Now, you've mentioned a couple of times in the conversation that your service experience is different. How do your associates work with the customer to get the right fit, to get the right product, and avoid that type of, you know, formulaic, pretty vacuous kind of conversation that, you know, so often you find? Certainly, and it's something that we're, we're still in development, and we often are changing things as we learn. But what I would say the overarching theme on my side is trusting our employees, and, and we try not to make it so formulaic that it becomes rehearsed or a script, and they become disengaged because they're just reciting something from memory. We've hired really intelligent, smart people with great attitudes. We want to trust them to sort of have a conversation and learn about the customer, learn about their needs, understand what sizing might work, knowing that our shoes only come in whole sizes, and, and being able to support them. And 
and and and get them a pair that fits, whether it's a wool or a tree or uh, a certain style. So I think that's the biggest thing for us is, is giving them more freedom and the opportunity to engage with the customer without having a predetermined script that uh, sort of is handed to them on training day and they're forced to follow. And I, I think that's that's something that, w- that we feel very strongly about. And we've got certain moments in the try-on when the person has presented the shoe is one that we do feel is very important and is a little bit more scripted. But oftentimes, uh, the rest of it is is just two humans having a conversation. And uh, again, we've hired really, really great people that I think can uh, make anyone's experience in the store fantastic when they when they when they walk in. As a as a young brand that's growing fast and one which has certainly got, as I mentioned earlier, some very famous followers, um, getting your message across and in a way that resonates with more people is clearly what everybody's trying to do. But in recent years, there's been a lot of focus on the role of influencers, for example. You know, people who are being paid a sum of money to go online, to say some good things, to share a few photos. How do you stand on that? Do you use influencers? I think the biggest ambassadors for our brand are our customers. And I think that's one of the reasons we were so successful early on was that word of mouth that uh, just became a snowball effect. And and in that first couple months, as people saw this product and tried it on, um, I think they felt like they were joining a bit of a community. And it was a, it was a sort of the best kept secret kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, and so they became the people who were telling their friends and family. I think that's what actually became sort of the ambassadors of, of that brand and the stewards of introducing us to new people who wouldn't have been exposed to us in the past. Because I think if there's one of the things that's really changed in the last 10 years, uh, and certainly I think since social media, is that the customer's, let's say, savviness, their perceptions around, you know, integrity and authenticity and which brands are really speaking with a true voice has changed. And I think the consumer is much more aware these days in terms of they can smell a rat, if you know what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. But you're saying it's really you'd rather use the customer to be the word of mouth and for the customer to be your brand advocates. Yeah, I think for us and for me in the store is that, and you, you hit the nail on the head, people trust people that they know and they can sniff out things that don't feel authentic. So when your family or member or friend is recommending a product, you trust that individual and it comes with a lot more credibility than someone you may not know. And there's certainly reasons to do the other types of uh, giveaways and products and brands may choose to do that. But for us, I think it is that, that, that one-to-one connection with someone you trust who says, you won't believe it, I just discovered the most comfortable shoe in the world. And and that experience, I think, is what's going to drive someone to purchase it more so than seeing something on social media or something that feels fake or, or, or uh, staged. You mentioned that our community is important to you. How are you developing communities where you place an open stores? Yeah, I'll give a quick example out in the field. And I think this is something that we think is is the future of retail, is, is developing these relationships with the community around you in a very local way and, and one that's authentic and real and connects with individuals who I think uh, who are influencers in their communities, but not in the more modern sense of the term. Someone who is is important to that community, whether it's uh, uh, someone who's involved uh, in in government or sport or art or or music, but on a local level that people trust. And so, as an example, last night in our Chicago store, we had uh, the brewer, female brewers of Chicago, and had a pizza and beer night and a discussion amongst them, and uh, and invited some of the the customers in our Chicago uh, neighborhoods to come hear from them and listen to their stories and hear about beer making and pizza in, in Chicago. And, and so that's just one small example of something that we want to continue to grow and evolve. And again, we're at the very, very start of it. We only have 10 stores and we've got just uh, just scratching the surface, but we, we recognize that connecting with the people in your neighborhood is going to be not only valuable for our business, but hopefully we can help them and support them and amplify their message and tell their story just as much as they can help tell ours or they have already if they've purchased products. 
And I think that's very interesting because I think for me, I'm um, certainly old enough to have seen this before. Um, retail itself is very cyclical. Um, back when I first started out on my retail career, you know, 30 years ago now, um, actually it was very commonplace for brands to host customer evenings. I think when social media um, got involved and then e-commerce really got involved, actually the role of the store suddenly became this is all about cold, hard fulfillment. But I think that's changing. How do you feel? Yeah, I completely agree. And I think we, we still want to fulfill and have a lot of shoes moving through our stores. But I think the opportunity for us to connect with our uh, important people in our neighborhoods and surrounding the stores is going to be a way for us to develop authenticity and connection with those consumers and with the people that trust those individuals. Uh, and for us, we can learn from them. Again, we learn from all of our customers, but those that are running small businesses and are entrepreneurs in their own right, there's always things that we can learn and figure out from them. And so um, having those types of individuals in our stores, talking to our store team, and explaining how they run their businesses and why they do the things that they do is, is just as much a learning experience for us as, as we can sort of help amplify their message and, and talk about the way they're doing their business. And I think for us, it'll probably be tied to sustainability and doing better things. Um, and again, we're, we're at the very sort of just, just scratching the surface on figuring out what it means to us. But I think it's something that's going to be quite important to us in the future. So one of the things that seems to have been very important in recent years for the big sneaker companies is customization. Um, how are Allbirds thinking about this? Now, if I'm right, I don't believe that you offer a customized product as yet. Yeah, as of now, we don't do fully customized. But what I will say is in each store, we have three unique laces that are tied to that, to that environment and to that local community. And it could be a reference to a piece of architecture or a local park or a, a reference to a color uh, that's important to that community. And so there's an opportunity for someone to give a light tweak to the shoe. I think we may be open to stuff in the future related to customization, but um, that's going to be the most important thing right now. And then I would say our broad color strategy, strategy we have our core color offering that's always there and, and is our sort of staple product, but we have drops of color that are unique and fresh. And whether it's something like our Just Water collaboration that we launched uh, just recently is a very limited edition uh, shoe, or something like our LA specific shoe that's only available in our LA store right now for a very short period of time, I think we'll create moments of uniqueness uh, and some scarcity and some excitement about product that way for now. Will we see the Allbirds uh, and Manalo Blanik uh, model anytime soon? I think there'll be a lot of really cool, interesting stuff. I will say that for us, finding a deeper meaning to that partnership or that collaboration, I think, is quite important. And you see that in Just Water and that we both are working to do better things for the environment, theirs with their water bottles and uh, how they manufacture them and the materials they use to create them. And, and then the support of, of, of the uh, problem right now in the Amazon rainforest across both of our businesses and, and donating the proceeds to that. So I think that's probably where we, we will focus on is areas where there's some depth to the partnership or collaboration and not something that's more superficial. So I guess this chimes back into your purpose-led mantra. Uh, so if you take somebody like H&M, they regularly now have collabs with um, people who are perhaps in the, the designer end of the clothing spectrum. And what that does is obviously give more credibility to their own offer. But what you're really saying is if you consider a collab, they've actually got to be very complementary to what your core values are all about. Yeah, and I think that's one we've been very selective of who we've partnered with, and I think that's why, is we find people that uh, are doing business the same way we are, and that's uh, with a purpose uh, and with a mission, and, and that there's uh, something that they're aligning with us on. So I think that's what's going to be a focus and what will likely drive future collaborations, though not my area of expertise. 
tell me about your area of expertise, because I believe you are um, relatively new to retail. Um, but I think that for me is quite interesting, because if you come with new experience, fresh pair of eyes, different background, actually, you can usually see common problems or solving problems which exist. Yeah, I think for me, I sort of uh, fell in love with it when I when I came to Allbirds and started in the supply chain side. But quickly, we started doing these pop ups, and we saw how quickly that they were going to be a real part of our business. And so I dove in head first and have fallen in love with retail. Uh, I think that for me, there's certainly we don't know what we don't know, and and so we've constantly been uh, learning from other people. We've brought on uh, amazing advisors, and we ask a lot of questions. But then there's things that we'll do differently, and um, when there's a way to improve the thir- throughput of the store by bringing our back of house into our front of house, it's quite a novel idea, even if it's not some sexy, cool piece of technology, but it simplifies the process for the customers, for employees, and creates a very visually and aesthetically pleasing uh, display in our stores. On the on the flip side, we don't need to recreate the wheel on things when other retail brands have done a great job, and there's a lot of great retail brands out there, as much as the narrative might not say that today. Um, so spending time with seasoned executives and experts in the field and learning um, the, thing, the things that they did best and, and, and trying to take a bits and pieces of those to form what is Allbirds retail. So I think it's a, a bit of both. So just tell us a little bit then about your former experience. What, what was life like before Allbirds? And what have you brought into this role? Yeah, so I was formerly uh, sort of spent my time in a lot of spreadsheets. I was in the finance world and investment banking and then um, loved consumer products. And I think I, that, I knew that my passion was in consumer products. So I actually worked for Chobani, the Greek yogurt company based out of New York, uh, and loved that as well. And it was a tremendous learning experience to be in a real business with a supply chain and factories and manufacturing uh, and sales of a product, um, but wanted to go somewhere smaller and more entrepreneurial and was fortunate to have a very serendipitous introduction to Joey Zwillinger, uh, my boss and our co-founder. Um, and and figured out a role that would fit more on the supply chain side to start. I think um, for me, I'm a very curious person and and it's one of our sort of three uh, important pillars of our business. And I think that's where I've come in with just an appetite to learn about whatever we need to figure out. And retail became that thing about six months in and uh, I don't. I certainly don't pretend to know everything uh, or anything at this point, but um, ask a lot of questions. I'm curious about how to do things, and I think the one thing that I've, I've probably done best is surrounding myself with smart people, and it's hiring individuals who know better than me, whether it's construction or retail operations or hiring and managing stores and field operations and uh, allowing them to flourish and giving them the freedom to, to develop this business and, and help us create a really great retail business that we hope is enduring and, and lasts a long time. And it's clear that your passion for retail is there. You can sense it in everything that you say. But if we were to look at the broader retail landscape right now, Allbirds is is bucking the trend of many brands who are regrettably having to close many of their stores, um, be that nationally or even brand-wise. You know, why are we seeing this tremendous culling of brands which have been around for so many years? Yeah, I think... The, the three things I would say is, is in this order is product, people, and environments. And for me, if you don't have a great product, you might as well not have a business. And whether that's e-commerce or brick and mortar, that, that's sort of a given. Is I think having a great product, at least in my opinion, is, is the starting point. And the second is the people. And I think we've talked about it, but so many traditional or older retailers overlooked the employees in their stores and how they were treated and how they thought about their growth and development and the way they were trained and what they were getting out of the job as an employee that I think it, it became a place where people were 
weren't interested in working in it. And I think what we can hope to do is change that and create an environment where we're supporting our employees and giving them opportunities and developing them and helping them grow in retail or elsewhere. Um, and so I think the people is the part that often is overlooked and missed. And then the last is the environments. So I think we've tried to design environments that serve those two stakeholders because those are the ones that need to have a great experience in the store for everyone to be happy at the end of the day. And what sounds so very modern from what you've just described there is clearly your base is a numbers man um, and someone who's also worked on the whole supply side. But what comes across is a very strong empathy towards people and how people are key to actually making this whole thing work. Yeah, and I think that it's something that uh, coming into this business not knowing much and not having a tremendous amount of retail experience, but bringing in people who have, it was often the first thing they said that that, that working in stores was was painful. It wasn't a great time, and oftentimes it was there for a short period, and then you often turned over and went somewhere else because you were unhappy. And so I think that was probably one of the first things I heard and learned, and I think the nature of me not knowing a lot was putting a lot into the store team's hands. So I think I've probably learned a lot more from our store leaders to date than they've ever learned from me. And it gives them an opportunity to put their own fingerprints on their business and developing something that is their own store that they're running and operating that they feel some ownership of. Um, and I think that's something that's quite unique. So I'm going to give you a moment here to give yourself an absolute platform. What advice would you give to the teams about you know looking at a spreadsheet, looking at the balance sheet and looking at the store open or closure program? What what do they need to do? What I would say is um, something I think is quite important that may be separate from the balance sheet and, and the financials to start is, is spending time in the stores. And I think that um, that's something that me, I do every day and I'm traveling to visit new stores and open stores uh, on a regular basis. But it goes up to Tim and Joey and Tim and Joey are in our stores uh, for hours, at least every other week. And they're spending time with the customers and the employees. And it's not just because they enjoy it and they do, it's so that they can learn. And we've talked about feedback from the customers, but they take in feedback from the employees. And so I think that's something where hopefully if someone were to spend some time in their stores, they'd understand maybe some of the things that were broken and the people that are in the stores all day, every day, be it employees or customers, are going to be much closer to the problems and the issues that that your business might be having. That's one that I think I've learned the most is is just spending time on the floor, chatting with our customers and our employees, and hearing hearing straight from from their mouths. And one of the things that strikes me is I think we are seeing a new era emerging in physical high street retail. The market has just been fascinated with the growth of e-commerce and it's got way too many headlines in terms of almost supporting that channel and model as, as kind of almost being how we will shop in future. But actually what I see now is that many of the brands which were uh, initially online only e-commerce brands are now recognising that actually having a physical retail presence is actually a win-win situation for the brand overall. And I think you've said that earlier. Yeah, I think for us, I think we've been very cautious and, and and wanted to make sure we had it right. And so that's why spending time in our pop-up here in San Francisco and going at a pace that may, to an outsider and even to me, sometimes feel quite fast, but but is quite deliberate and calculated in how we've approached retail to date, um, has allowed us to create a environment that is a positive and additive sort of uh, channel to our to our e-commerce. And I think um, that's where uh, all of our stores are are ones that we're extremely happy with. The NPSs are through the roof. Um, our employees are, are thrilled and, and are excited and uh, and we're moving a lot of product and, and selling a lot of shoes. We've made sure to spend a lot of time and be very thoughtful about how we've done things. We haven't gone and, and again, we've opened uh, 12 stores so far this year or 11 stores so far this year. Uh, but if you look at the brands of yesteryear, that, that's, that's nothing. And so 
for us, it's it's sort of going at a pace that we feel comfortable with and making sure we're not cutting corners and that we're learning from every single store opening that we have and then plowing those learnings into the next one um, and making sure that we continue to improve. And I think that's what's going to be uh, allow us to develop and, and hopefully have an enduring retail fleet of stores that we continue to grow. One of the few last questions I have, but I'm just fascinating at what's in the water here because um, we've now interviewed uh, maybe a dozen startup um, plus businesses that have come from San Francisco, not just in the apparel sector, but in the electronics sector, people who are uh, in the grocery sector too. What is it about San Francisco and the Bay Area which is creating this new breed of disruptive retail influencers? It's a great question because it's not a traditional retail location for the most part. You have some legacy brands like The Gap and Old Navy and... and uh, but they uh, had their time yeah, they in had their, their time. time. Yep. Yeah, it's a great question. I think there is a natural curiosity and willingness to try things here. And I think for us, that's where Joey and Tim sort of gained the permission to try something new and different. And Joey was here based in San Francisco. Tim was not. He was in London and New Zealand. But uh, I think he saw the importance and the, uh, and the uh, willingness and the culture of this sort of city or, or sort of region uh, to allow you to try things and see what happens. And, and I think it's sort of been said that failure is not a bad thing. And I think that it sort of there's there's some truth to that. And that um, if you're having a go at it, that you're going to be recognized here. And, and it's not necessarily a bad thing if it doesn't work out. But I think Tim and Joey uh, felt that that was a, an opportunity here. And there's certainly other reasons, whether it's access to capital or, or resources um, and hiring uh, and the benefits of that and being in the, the Bay Area or Silicon Valley. But I think that first part is the most important, and it's the willingness to let someone try something and, and have a go at it. So when you were working at Chobani previously, you were working in New York. How easy was it to make the transition to the West Coast? So I'm, I'm fortunate. I'm a Bay Area guy, and I grew up uh, just about an hour away from here. But but it was it was a, a, a big adjustment. I mean, New York is its own beast, and I love it and still spend a lot of time there with the, with the store we have and the team we have on the ground. But uh, it was a little bit of a coming home, and, and I have family here, so it's been it's great to be back in the area. And, and I do think it, there's a great energy in New York. I think the entrepreneurial energy in this in this area is what's special and unique and why there have been so many successful companies that have come out of here, regardless of what sector. Well, undoubtedly, you love your job. I want to know what you do when you're not focused on old words. I do love my job. I think the one thing I've grown to appreciate more and that I do enjoy is sort of a passion is travel. And uh, by virtue of my role, I'm on the road nonstop and in different countries and different cities and places I never would have imagined visiting at previous jobs, but are sort of part of the daily life here at Allbirds. And that's where I think I've, I've sort of fallen in love with exploring new countries and cities and have a routine of going on a run and exploring a city on my own for a little bit wherever I am. And I think that's something that's been uh, sort of a fun perk of the role. Amazing. You've been listening to the Retail Exchange podcast, and it's been my absolute pleasure to have the guest, Travis Boyce, who's the head of global retail for Allbirds. Thank you and goodbye. You've been listening to the Retail Exchange podcast in association with Visual Thinking. Stay up to date with new podcast episodes by subscribing online at theretailexchange.co.uk and join the debate on Twitter, hashtag Retail Exchange. Thanks for listening.